uh, from other readers. This interview we're going to do today is uh, in the series called Books Worth Reading, where someone talks about a book that they really recommend and they'd like us to read. And today I've got Advaya Chitta. Welcome, Advaya Chitta. Hello. <laughs> and what is the book you want to recommend to us? The book is Despised by Paul Embury. And its subtitle is Why the Modern Left Loathes the Working Class. Interesting. Mm. Let's begin by talking about the author. Who is Paul Embury? Paul Embury is hes a firefighter by trade. He's a trade unionist. He's been a long-term member of the Labour Party. And he's also a writer. I, I came across him on an online magazine called Unheard, where the I was quite struck by the clarity uh, of his writing and the, the topics he was talking about. Um, and, well, he brought out this book, I think, a year or so ago, and I, I was very um, taken with the book as well. Mm, yes, I've read a few of Paul Embury's uh, articles in Unheard and also, I think, in Spiked. He comes on to Spiked sometimes. Um, but he's uh, not just a Labour party man is he he's uh, what what he calls blue labor blue labor yes so what is in, that indeed what's blue labor you could say blue labor is an aspect of the labor tradition that emphasizes in certain ways more conservative conservative with a small c um, traditions like community like the nation um, like the family yeah, and I think it's a, it's an interesting term, blue labour, for I think part of the labour come socialist tradition actually goes back a long way. I, I think there are different aspects of what we could call the socialist traditions, and they they are actually very very different, um, and and sometimes what he calls blue labor you could call the old labor movement rather than socialist um i mean it depends on your on your definitions but i think it's a very important tradition that goes back you know a couple of hundred years or so actually to the 18th century um with the the, the rise of uh, if you like, the, the British um, moral philosophy tradition that, that really began, I think, in the 18th century and, and became established in things like the Methodist Church and how they um, looked after people and helped people get education, etc. So there's a, there's a long sort of history behind it mm -hmm. and I, I see him and what he calls blue labor now as part of that tr tradition yeah. mm. Mm. Uh, would it be accurate to say that uh blue labor is socially conservative yes yeah, socially conservative with a small c in that as i say it, it values family local community um the nation um, the nation state it also values democracy, of course. Um, and if we're going to call those conservative, yeah, um, they're, they're very different from 
from the what he's um, criticizing in the book mm. um, of the what's developed in what he calls the liberal left mm. um, which is now if you like the, the orthodoxy in much of the western world yeah yes uh the thing that strikes me mostly about Paul Embry is his integrity. Mm. He seems a man of great integrity to me. Yes, that that comes across to me as well. Mm. You know, I, I feel that you know, there's there's no nonsense about 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 Paul. You know, he's he's writing from the heart about things he feels very deeply about, um, and he's writing with clarity of of, of thought. Um, as well, and it comes across as as an on, honest appraisal of what's going on. He does indeed, yeah. So uh, the title of the book, "Despised," w mm. what does that refer to? Well, it's well as the subtitle is, "Why the Modern Left Loathes the Working Class." Mm. Well, what does he mean by the by the modern left here? He means well. One of his terms for it is the liberal left. Yeah, um, or the woke left, shall we say? Um, and he actually talks about um, what he, one of his chapters is entitled "A New National Religion: Liberal Wokedom." Gosh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it, it is interesting. He compares it to um, a religion, which is not the only person doing. Indeed, that, not. I, I could, I could, re I could re return to that. Um, but he's contrasting his, if you like, socialist labour tradition that he's coming from, blue labour, contrasts it very much with that new, that modern orthodoxy of of identity politics. Um, call it wokedom. Uh, used to ha have the title, you know, twenty, thirty years or so ago, of political correctness. Mm. Um, and he's, he looks at how his own party, the Labour Party, went from being a party that really did represent the interests of the working class people in, in Britain, and how it, over time, became a party of the more university-educated, more liberal left, um, who very much are into identity politics and who's left the old class politics behind, really, mm. um, and, uh, you know, replacing it with um, identity politics and thereby um, actually no longer representing working class people. Mm. Um, and um, he makes very good points about this, how, how um, it un actually undermines the solidarity and interests of working class people. Um, the, you know, sort of woke politics, um, be because it actually divides people up into different categories, some of whom are the goodies and some of whom are the, the baddies, shall we say. And... Um, and actually discriminates against the so-called baddies. Um, so one thing he talks about is how, um, you know, white people are supposed to have privilege, you know, the original sin of privilege, white privilege, as he calls it, and then points out, well, how does um, a, a young working-class kid in a deprived part of, 
of, of Britain, you know, who's white and who's got no no um, opportunities. How how is he privileged exactly? Mm. You know, it, it's um, as he says, it, it's, this form of politics is is divisive, and he make, make, makes that very very clear, and actually. Harm harms people. Mm. Yes, harms the working class. You know whether it's the white English working class or or other, you know, non-white people, working class people, they get harmed by it actually, and their interests are not met. And he talk, he's talking about how that, if you like, woke religion, that ideology that, that's taken hold of the the liberal left how it goes hand in hand actually with what he calls sort of neoliberalism on the economic front, um, sort of rampant capitalism, if you like, to you, you, you use another term, and how interesting it is that there is this um, union, if you like, of identity politics with big business and... Um, yeah, how the two actually go together and um, undermine the, both of them undermining the the interests of of, of working class people. Mm. Um, mm. You know, I think yeah, working class people. If we if we uh, expand that category to include many middle class. People, I think it undermines them as well. I, mean, I, mean, I agree, agree with him very much. Um, that there's this, this this sort of, if you like, double assault on on ordinary people's um, values, their community, their livelihoods, coming from an interesting amalgamation of the one hand of something that seems to be the worst of capitalism to use to use that phrase with a form of politics that's identity politics which actually if we if we trace it back um, it doesn't really come from the liberal left it comes more from from the far left it's like a, a mutation of the old far left um, and it's interesting that um, there's now that strange amalgamation of two apparently very opposite things um, which is actually um, having a you know a dominant effect through much of the western world or th through much of the world now um, you know, and he makes it very clear that um, you know it, this is harmful. I'm uh, I'm interested in the um, <clears throat> the two seemingly opposite things um, of uh, capitalism and woke. How does that work, according to Paul? Lemley? Well, well, I suppose he just describes it as actually that's what's happened. Yes, rather than rather than particularly going into the why and the wherefore yes. of how it's yes. happened, I think you have to go into sort of other um, writers to understand how how that's happened. My personal take on it is that the uni universities became places for the development of I identity politics. Um, often elite universities in the West, particularly America, but also elsewhere. And they started 
you know, developing, if you like, sort of identity politics, you know, 30 odd years or more ago. And it's gradually taken hold and they've taught people and people have, have, have learnt to look at the world in, in, in through the, the uh, lens of identity politics and, you know, they go out into the world and get jobs. So gradually it's had more and more influence. Mm. And the irony is... Um, it, it actually has influence in big business um, as well. I mean, there's another author that goes into this, you know, Vivek Ramaswamy, an, an American CEO, um, who who actually describes this amalgamation as a, a bit of an arranged marriage, mm -hmm. he calls it. <laughs> um, but nevertheless, it, it's happened. Um, so what what you're actually getting is, um, you know, very wealthy and highly influential and powerful people, and their um, associates are, are actually pushing um, a doctrine um, which originated really from the far left. Mm. Yeah, a sort of far left that a sort of new left that had given up on old Marxist-type um, politics that emphasised the working class. Um, they sort of gave up on that, emphasised other things as well, other forms of identity. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, I mean, as I say, the, the real irony is that that has um, had its arranged marriage, its amalgamation, with actually people who are very, very wealthy and powerful, mm. who, who are now pushing it. Uh, the point also being that um, such people tend to, um, if you like, promote what can be called globalism. The idea that nation states are things of the past, um, that you know they're anachronistic, even even somehow racist to think about a, a nation state, for example, and um, the important thing is to you know have a sort of world economy and a, a world that somehow you know sort of um, has in a certain way a world government. You know, that's that's the goal. Only it's called global governance rather than global government. Mm. Um, mm. And in a way, it's to a certain extent, it's 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 been happening. Um, if you like, the undermining of democratically elected uh, governments um, in in Western nations, as in as in Britain, um, by if you like, a system of global, global governance of the rich and powerful, um, who also are promoting, amongst other things, in identity politics, you know, sort of the, the, the woke religion. Um, and, you know, getting back to Paul Embury's book, he, he is documenting the effects of that on his local community. Ah, yeah. so I was just about to ask you, uh, global mm. governance, uh, I know many mm. people who think that's a very good idea, and on the face of it, it sounds good, like one world, one governance. So what's wrong with that? Yeah. 
Well, it's completely undemocratic. Yes, um, global governments comes from what should we call them? The Davos set, the World Economic Forum and its attendees who are the rich and powerful and also many, many uh, politicians uh, as well. And the point is, it, it is a way of subverting democracies because the rich and powerful work hand in glove with apparently, well, people who are elected by their their um, citizens, but actually do the work of the rich and powerful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so um, democracy becomes rather a sham. Yeah. You, things are elected, people are elected, but parties no longer really represent the people who are electing them. It becomes, you know, a, a career in politics becomes a way of entering, if you like, the, the Davos set and its associates. Um, so you get a career making, you know, actually making lots of, of money. You know, you become a, a, a politician who ends up making millions, um, who's well in with with the the Davos, the Davos crowd. Um, one term for this sort of global governance and what's actually happening with it is called, it's called stakeholder capitalism. Yeah, that's the, that's the technical term. And supposedly it's uh, capitalism, which takes in the interests of all stakeholders. Um, yeah, which sounds quite good. Stakeholders mean being, you know, people on who, who on, on the receiving end of um, a business or who are affected by the business in some way. So it, it sounds a good idea. In actual practice, it's about a, a, an amalgamation of very sort of um, very powerful businesses and uh, billionaire individuals about their amalgamation with, if you like, a, a, an international business class um, making decisions um, about how to do things, which, are the, which then the, the governments in each country enact but it's nothing to do with what the citizens want. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not what what the politicians were um, elected for. Um, it's it's more like the um, local government um, is, you know, doing the the wishes of. Um, if you like, the globalists, to, to call them that, the sort of managerial elites mm. um, around the world, and sort of ignoring the, the, the actual needs of ordinary people. Mm. And this yeah. is the betrayal he mentions. Oh, yeah. Mm. yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, There's one thing about Paul Embry that I've seen him interviewed a couple of times, and uh, he mm. seems angry to me. Yeah. Well, I haven't seen him seen him um, interviewed myself, I, w I under would understand 
the anger. I mean, he comes from a particular community in sort of Dagenham, in sort of East East London, which he describes. You know, he grew up in it. He describes until about the year two thousand ish as you know a good local community where people knew each other. Um, you know, very much community. And then, because of the huge scale of immigration that that um, happened around that time, with huge numbers of people coming into Britain, and many, many of them settling, embarking in Dagenham, it completely undermined the community and its needs um, that, that was that was there. So I can imagine he would have been angry about that, Ooh. you know, s- seeing that happen, and that realizing that people, when people were speaking up about it, they would be ignored, or even accused of being racist. Mm. Because you know they, they they were concerned about their jobs being being threatened, their community being undermined by having just so many incomers. Yeah, and he points out that actually this was a, a tolerant community. You know, they, it wasn't just a white community. They, you know, they were, it wasn't racist. Um, you know, actually it was a mixture in the first place. Um, but it's the sheer level of um, of immigration into the area which did the damage. It, you know, it was too much, you know, far too quickly, um, with with you know undermining the wages of people in in the area, you know, putting a higher demand for housing and services, etc., etc., and. The people of Barking and Dagenham, like lots of other people like them, were not being listened to. Mm. And in fact, you know, even within the Labour Party themselves, they were being disparaged. You know, these, if you look, these sort of, you know, bigoted hoi polloi mm. who you know, didn't have a, um, you know, have a legitimate argument. You know, it's according to the woke, mm. Yeah, mm. when actually they had a very, very serious. Um, argument indeed that their community was being you know pulled apart it's so easy for people like Paul Embry to be accused of racism because they're questioning that the um the wisdom and the the ethics of uh so much immigration indeed oh indeed which is ironic because um Paul Embury himself is married to a woman of Anglo-Indian descent. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Her her father was an immigrant from India, you know, sort of working-class family, you know. Um, So, you know, as as, um, Paul Embury says, you know, the the people of Barking and Dagenham, you know, and they're not racists. You know, it it was to some extent a mixed community. It wasn't just a a white community. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's the classic one, you know, if you you argument, if you argue at all against immigration of no matter what levels, then you must be racist. Mm -hmm. That's the the classic Mm -hmm. thing, rather than no, actually, there it is important um, to have a sense of community, and you belong to a community, and it's important that that's not 
pulled apart in various ways, undermined in in various ways. Mm. And one of the ways it can be undermined is through sort of massive immigration into it. Mm. Yeah. So um, that's is that the the main thrust of the book? What you've just been explaining to us. It, it, that's that's part of it, the sort of immigration. But of course, of course, there there are you know other effects of globalization. Um, globalization undermines um, working people's ability to earn money mm. because the globalists can simply well they can do two things they can they can uh, take the work elsewhere, employing people in another country who, who can be employed, employed for much less. Mm. But of course, another way of um, undermining, you know, reducing labour costs is to have immigrants into a, a more well, wealthier country, but immigrants who are, are willing to work for less. Mm. Yeah. Um, Arbitrage, I think, is the, the term Gosh. Um, for for this um, the sort of undermining of the f the free market, whatever that is, mm. um, in, in in one way or another. You know, um, there's that, there's actually an American um, author called Michael Lind, who's written a book called The New Class War, who actually in in various ways is saying similar things to Paul Embury. Um, you know, he's talking about this amalgamation between, you know, sort of neoliberal economics and um, the sort of liberal left um, woke ideology, yeah, that, that there is and how it undermines working people. Mm. Just before we move on, you've mentioned two books now. <laughs> uh, and it, they, they came and went very quickly. So the first one was Vikram Somebody, an American. Oh, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy wrote a book called Woke Incorporated. Good. Okay. Yeah. So that's how big business in America and elsewhere where is very much um, proponent of identity politics. Mm. Yeah. Okay. And the one you just mentioned, Michael... Michael Lind, yeah, it's the new class war. Mm. He's an American, I think, academic journalist. I'm not quite sure of his background. Again, coming from a similar sort of left Labour background to Paul Embry, although he, you know he's a, he's American, and his analysis is in a similar way. You know, this is an amalgamation of um, neoliberal economics, you know, extreme free market uh, economics and the, the liberal left's identity politics, mm. yeah. Mm. And it undermines the working class, yeah. Yes, yes. Mm. Um, let's get back to Paul Embry and his book. Uh, I, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I've got an idea now what he means by despised and betrayed by the the elite. Uh, oh, yeah. So are there any other areas you'd like to talk about? Um, well, he, what he does do is make a case for the, for the nation state, ah. which I think is very interesting that, um, and I mentioned Michael Lind, he, he's doing that as well. 
Um, it's making a case for the nation state. You know, people ha have a sense of community to which they belong and contribute, in which their views are taken seriously and enacted upon, you know, sort of politically, you know, through a democratic process. And the importance of that, yeah, if you don't have democratic nation states, well, then you have the very rich and powerful running riot. Mm. That's how I, I, I would put it. You know, global governments means actual global dictatorship. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I think it's a very important concept to understand, if you like, I would call it a healthy idea of a nation state, a democratic nation state. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, some bigoted ethnic nationalism, you know, mm. and, and countries just pitched against each other. If you like, having a, a healthy body politic rooted in place, yeah, and rooted in the community of people that um, that live in that place, mm. yeah. Mm. I think actually very important. Um, it's not the, you know, it, it can't just be that. It's like the, the nation state should be made up of, if you like, communities and organisations on a, on a sort of smaller level, which actually reflect and embody the cooperative um, endeavours of, of people. Mm. Yeah. And it's very important to have those sort of smaller units like trade unions, friendly societies, you know, churches, whatever. Yeah, it's very important to have those um, smaller organisations or whatever you like to call them, um, in which people can collectively come together, cooperate. Yeah, and it's those that also make up the nation state. It's not just people, you know, elect, uh, you know, a parliament, you know, with members of parliament, you belong to parties. It's much more than that. You know, there are actually really existing and effective local organisations in which people are participating mm. and in which their views are being heard and enacted. Yeah. Um, and I think, actually, I think there's an irony to this idea of the nation state, because I think it, it came originally, um, as far as I can remember, from Adam Smith, who um, was the one originally coming up with the idea of the free market. Yeah. Um, what, we, what we have now is those that are um, advocating the, the, the free market, um, are actually undermining nation states. Mm, mm. <laughs> yeah, they, they, I think, yeah, when one looks actually at what these things mean, things like free market, um, capitalism, um, and, and, and such like, they're actually rather problematic concepts which can mean lots of different things and be used by people in, in different ways. You're, you you're reminding me of a book <clears throat> that... I'm sure you've read 
when we were both young men, there was a book that came out <laughs> that uh, our teacher, Sanger, actually recommended we all read, um, Small is Beautiful by somebody Schumacher. I can remember reading it. I can't remember anything about it. Well, I, I don't remember very much, but his the whole point of the book was to say this, you great big organisations don't work very well. It's much better to be in small organisations where you know people and so on. Oh, yeah. Well, that, that makes sense. Yes, indeed. Um, well, I think it actually comes back to something Sangha actually talked about, which is the importance of um, the individual. Yes. Um, an individual is not just a member of a group and is not an individualist. An individual is somebody with a healthy um, psychological and ethical approach to the world who is in, who very much works in relation to other, other people. You know, that's, if you like, the healthy individual. Well, I think that also is true on sort of more collective levels. So if you have an organisations, it's important to have healthy organisations, yeah, that uh, are ethical and um, and actually help people to be um, to be ethical and um, in good psychological, spiritual health. Yeah, it's important to have such. Um, I call them organisations for want, for want of a better word, um, as well. You know, and actually, if you like, healthy individuals sort of act within healthy organisations, shall we say? Mm. And perhaps an important thing to to have as an ideal to to work towards is is having something like a, a nation state, which is a sort of healthy. Um, collective yeah which can engage ethically with other healthy collectives other nation states Ooh. yeah um in other words i suppose the point i'm i'm trying to make here is that um one shouldn't um how can i put it look down on the idea of a nation state as you know just some anachronism that's mm -hmm. bound to be um bound up with racism or ethnic prejudice or, or some xenophobia uh, yeah and, uh, it's actually people do need collectivities that are healthy mm. yeah. i'm thinking of the uh, very important mm. distinction between patriotism and nationalism Oh, indeed, yes. Sangharachita made made that distinction, and Paul Embry talks about patriotism, mm. you know, mm. which is this healthy, uh, positive regard for your for your nation state and people in it who are who are somewhat like you. Yes, yeah? yes. I mean, there may be differences, but actually, there's there is a collective um, appreciation, shall we say, mm. of each other and each other's interests. Mm. Um, Yes. Well, uh, you could say then that patriotism uh, is born of positive emotions and nationalism is definitely negative. Oh, yeah. Well, in, indeed, yeah. I, I sometimes look at on the difference between the two of them as like the difference between 
a healthy personality and an unhealthy personality or a personality disorder mm. yeah mm. if if you like you know on the sort of national level there's been in the past sort of nasty nationalism which we can if you like compare to you know something like a bit like psychopathy or something it's doing other people down mm. yeah mm. um but just because there's been that you know sort of nasty as unhealthy um nationalism shall we say that doesn't mean to say there can't be a healthy patriotism indeed yeah? uh, <laughs> and yeah. as we're speaking there's a war going on not too far away from us the, yeah. the russians oh, yeah. under putin have invaded uh ukraine mm. and it looks like the 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 two things that uh, the ukrainians especially president zelensky is their mouthpiece they just love their country mm. whereas uh uh, well, Putin, you can't say the Russian people because it's Putin really, is uh, coming down very hard on them because he wants to take Ukraine into Russia. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I, have, I confess I haven't been following closely that, partic that particular the war, but it, you know, it clearly raises the importance of actually having healthy nations, mm. yes, mm. and not some you know, unhealthy nationalism or perhaps something that's sort of, other than that, sort of an unhealthy internationalism. Um, I, I do wonder whether that's still there in the, in the sort of psyche of Putin, the, the old um, communist international um, ideas, yeah, um, as well, yeah. Um, I mean, I think the situation in Ukraine is is complex because there there are issues to do with Russia feeling threatened mm. by um, NATO, etc., mm. and and Ukraine's being how much Ukraine's involved with that. So I think it's actually a complex issue. Mm. Um, but in in a way, it's uh, it, it's uh, an example of. You know, there's the sort of what should we call it? Let's call it unhealthy nationalism, mm. rather than rather than healthy patriotism. At least on one side. Yes, yes. I can't really speak for Russia, but uh, mm. what comes across very strongly from President Zelensky and some of the other people who have been on the telly from Ukraine, it really seems like they love their country in a very positive way. Right. Right, right, right. Well, I think it, it is it, it is an important thing to do. <laughs> yes, mm. I mean, it, it is interesting as a Buddhist to say this because, in a certain way, um, being Buddhist is to go beyond particular groups and distinctions. Aha! Uh -huh, yes, yeah. yes, yeah. Um, and perhaps you know some people will conclude from that. Well. To be a Buddhist, therefore, you've got to be completely internationalist, mm. you know, having no borders, mm. you know, no no boundaries between self and other. Um, but I think, well, do human cultures work like that at all? Mm. Or actually, do you need, you know, just like healthy personalities on the individual level, you need healthy national groups shall we say mm. on, on the collective level mm. yeah and i think that that actually is very important you need healthy collectivities mm. you know which are in some ways self-determining 
Yeah. Yes. Yeah, they're not 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 controlled from above. Yeah. Um, and it, I, th- I think there's, you know, another aspect to all this is control control from above versus pe- people being able to make their own decisions mm. and mm. do what they think mm. is right. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Um, the phrase the Great Reset comes to mind. I don't know much about the Great Reset, but I think it's something to do with globalism, is it not? Uh, oh, yes, it's the World Economic Forum. You know, it, it it is basically, you know, everybody having forced on, on them, uh, you know, a, a new system of, well, global governance, <laughs> yeah. unelected global governance, basically, um, where we, we do what we're told. Yeah. I mean, I, I have a very low opinion of the the World Economic Forum and uh, the, the globalists um, because it really is about control from above. Yeah, not democracy at all. Mm. Um, it's partly that's partly associated with sort of development of what we can call managerialism, where the managers are in control and set targets for those below them to um, do what they should do yeah Um, rather than leaving decision making to be to be where it should be Mm. you know sort of lower down the hierarchy shall we say Mm. Um, I think you know that's uh, if you like a rather dangerous situation has been developing in in the world you know with with global governments i look on it as a bit of a return to um the old medieval feudal aristocratic system um we've had a bit of reasonably effective democracy for a while and actually the way things have developed that's been undermined and actually what you're getting is a bit of a return to old style um, if you like neo feudalism, mm. and in fact, there's another book I could mention. It's called Neo Feudalism, <laughs> by a writer called Joel Kotkin, which is making exactly this point. Mm. You know that that's where we we're heading. You know, sort of um, sort of global managerial control, um, control from above, where we have less and less say about what or, you know what we can can or cannot do mm. Yeah. Mm. Mm. I think it's you know, very concerning yes um, so that's basically what the book's about yeah. well I'm, I'm, I've gone a bit away from Paul Embry <laughs> yeah. himself but he you know he, he is documenting if you like the effects of this globalist um, elitist identity politics associated um if you like political and economic movement that's been happening um its effect on his local community and communities in britain Mm. you know and he's i think he's um depicted it very well and um you know and um you know brought out the, the important aspects to it in a, in a very clear, uh, very clear way. Mm, mm. Well, it sounds like a book well worth reading to me. Indeed, yeah, indeed. <laughs> Thank you for sharing all that with us, Advaya Chitta. Right. Okay. My pleasure. Uh-huh.